Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I'm Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is the great Kevin Pelton of ESPN, and we have an incredibly fun, wide-ranging conversation from the surprising teams in the West to his mailbag piece talking about the Rockets and the Pistons to breakout candidates and so much more. Really fun conversation. This week's episode is brought to you by FanDuel, fanduel fanduel.com slash Boston. New customers get $200 in bonus bets guaranteed when you place a $5 bet. Conversation runs just about an hour. Lots of truly great stuff in here, and I hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks as always for having me. I want to get to the piece that you wrote on the Rockets and the Pistons soon enough, but I want to open it up first and just say there's a lot going on in the league right now. What is what is sticking out to you? What is sticking out to me? I mean, I think the the overriding thought that I've had the last couple of weeks is with one possible exception, well, maybe two possible exceptions, I guess. Well, it feels like a lot of the teams that were early surprises are starting to slide back to the pack. And a lot of the teams that struggled early are starting to, you know, come near to the top of the standings again. All of a sudden, the top of the East standings is Boston, Philly, Milwaukee, like we all expected. And granted, Milwaukee's point differential is still pretty unimpressive. And Philadelphia is still probably playing better than we would have expected had we known that James Harden wasn't going to be part of this at all. And, you know, even of the guys that they got in return for him, Nick, Nick Batum has missed a lot of time thus far due to personal reasons. But, you know, you look at the even the top four, it's Miami in fourth. Uh, you know, that that sounds about right. New York is not far behind. That started to come back in the West. Dallas was the biggest early surprise. They're still fourth in the West as we record this at nine and five. But a plus two point four point differential. They're closer to who we thought they were at this point. And it's Minnesota and Oklahoma City who are the the two relative surprises who keep on trucking here at the top of the Western Conference alongside Denver. That ties in with what is the kind of the big thing to me. And I'll, I'll start it with the West because the East is a little bit stickier. That I'm not seeing any new rising threats for potentially winning the conference. Now, like, there are a lot of teams that are positive stories, and I'm sure we'll get into a fair portion of those in the West over the course of this conversation. But as well as Minnesota's played, as well as Houston and OKC have played, I think of them more in the vein of what Cleveland did last year, where really good regular season team, especially because there's the, please correct me if I'm wrong, there's a general statistical argument that you need some playoff experience, especially playoff experience together, unless you're like the Miami Big Three or Boston or some other stuff, and they had playoff experience just not together, in order to make that big leap. And so for the for the West in particular, it's like, okay, that's not going well, but that kind of like tier of exciting teams that are going to be relevant, that group is surprisingly robust to me. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting with the West because I think a lot of it depends on... I guess, A, how much do you think Denver is just heads and shoulders ahead of everyone else because, you know, they're still near the top of the conference with Jamal Murray missing an extended period of time. Uh, Tuesday night, Jokic gets tossed in the first half. Michael Malone gets tossed. They're playing in Detroit, which isn't the hardest place to play, to play by, by a long stretch, but still roll on to a victory without that those guys. Uh, that was pretty impressive to me. And then I, the other element of the question is, how do you evaluate Minnesota and Oklahoma City relative to this group of teams that I think people expected to be the second group in the West that was Lakers, Suns, Clippers after they added James Harden, who are all mired near 500 right now. We expect they'll be better playoff teams than regular season teams, but just how much better? I, I do think we can be guilty of you know, just kind of overrating the we've seen it before element. And the one thing that, that just absolutely drives me batty is, oh, they're not going to be scared of anyone. Okay, well, were the Warriors scared of the Lakers in last year's playoffs? It's easy to scare yourself right to Cancun, 
or not scare yourself, I should say. Yeah, that's a great point. And there's also the element of it. And it this is the way that I get tempted of Team X, like the Warriors are a good example of this. I think the Lakers are doing set. Like the constituent elements that make them a dangerous team aren't looking good right now. So like the Warriors support players generally have been bad to start the year. Like Wiggins has had a rough start. Clay Thompson has had a rough start. And those guys playing well is almost as much of a requirement for them to be a relevant championship contender as Stephen Curry being Stephen Curry, which we largely have seen so far. So it's, how do you reconcile that? Do you say like, well, Clay Thompson is has been worse than has been worse than he needs to be, but he can get there. And if you're giving them that benefit of the doubt, then why aren't you giving that giving a similar thing to Shea Gilles Alexander or Chet Holmgren in Oklahoma City, where they haven't had the opportunity? But when you think about how their games could like how how their games could fit, especially against some of these other opponents, like they could be really dangerous. Yeah, Shea in particular is an interesting one because he's he's good at all the other things that simulate playoff basketball. Like we haven't we have seen him in the playoffs. It's been a long period of time, and he was a a kind of in a much smaller role when he last and, played. And, there and he the was bad. Like that was the weirdest thing about the playoffs back when he was a youngster playing with Chris Paul. He was rough in those playoffs. I've I've completely erased that from my my mind, except for uh, you know the end of the 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 game that Houston managed to eliminate them. Uh, but the World Cup, and especially in the elimination stages, Shea was nails. He's yes. an amazing clutch player. So like everything that kind of is seems to correlate with playoff success is, is lining up for him. I mean, you mentioned needing playoff experience. I would say I wouldn't say you need it because we do have some outlier examples out there. You know, the Warriors had had won a playoff series before they won a championship but you know people always think of the oh you you know the classic bulls 90s bulls where well we're knocking against on the door and we lose to the pistons in the conference finals then we finally get over the top and beat them and become the champions like that's not everyone follows a path like that i I don't think you necessarily need it but there is a situation where it does seem that experienced teams both by virtue of conserving energy in the regular season and a lack of depth that is less important in the playoffs play better in the playoffs relative to inexperienced teams and that's going to be really interesting to watch i mean we had you know sacramento golden state was maybe the all-time example of that last year and the kings gave them a hell of a fight before eventually losing in seven and i think the odds are we're going to have maybe two series like that this year in the West if Minnesota and Oklahoma City stay in the top four in the West and you've got, you know, these this tier of of championship contenders that are probably going to be somewhere between five and eight. It's a great point. And them staying up necessarily pushes other teams down. It doesn't have to specifically be those teams, but it probably will be just as a matter of course. And I've fixated at times over the idea that one of the elements that makes a championship contender is versatility, because the fact of the matter is you're going to probably play at least three. I usually like to think of it as three because you might get a soft opponent in the first round or maybe an injured opponent in the second or third. You're going to need but, to face But sometimes that, that number eight seed you face in the first round is actually your toughest test, which absolutely now, now is starting to seem legit a bit with Minnesota. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, that that was a really fascinating series. I talked about that a little bit with Matt Moore because he's so well connected with the Nuggets. And so I always think about it in the idea of like, okay, presum- presumably you're going to face three different high-level opponents. And just by the sheer versatility in the NBA right now, they're going to have very different strengths and weaknesses. And so maybe it's going to be a, you know, dominant wing scorer or a high pick and roll team or anything else. And sometimes you just avoid one genre. You seem to to be mistaken. All NBA teams play the same because of analytics. Don't you know that? Yes. And, and... (laughs) I know why we're going over, going over all of my pet peeves on today's yes, podcast. Absolutely, it's it's a forte, and and so for me, a team like Minnesota, where I mean Minnesota, they're they're very Gobert reliant on defense, but he's damn good, and they have a lot of other length on the perimeter. They they do a lot of things well. But, you know, it's like, oh, you can do that in Oklahoma City, that their their offense doesn't, it has all different creators, but it kind of has a, it has some specific elements that are kind of going to continue. And so if you, you know, they've been amazing running, if that, if that has to tone down a little bit, because generally teams get back in transition better in the playoffs and all that type of stuff, and they can scout everything else. But 
I don't know, especially if the Warriors like don't don't have that fifth guy that they trust right now, which it appears that they might not. And like the Lakers aren't a particularly versatile team either. I mean, they they did different things on their path. Like they had the Austin Reeves run, particularly in that Memphis series, to to kind of put them over the top. And AD has he has volatility himself offensively. But like the Suns, the Suns have that in their offensive attack, but they don't have that defensively either. So maybe I'm holding the I'm holding the less established teams to a higher standard and I mean last year's Denver team first of all they were way better defensively in the late stages of the regular season the postseason or let's say the second half of the regular season than they had been previously Jokic took steps they have a, a lot of good talent but also like we thought they're we we meaning collective that their flaws against a high pick and roll team were going to be a big problem and lo and behold they didn't really face one yeah I mean look the even though the playoffs are a diverse set of opponents, it's still a relatively small sample size out of the entire league or even of all the possible teams you could face. I mean, I, I will push back. Oklahoma City is number two, according to Cleaning the Glass, in half-court points per play. I, I think one of the interesting things would be Josh Giddy in a playoff setting. Sure. Someone we haven't seen in that format. And, you know, do his, does his lack of shooting become magnified? Uh, what what does that end up meaning for Oklahoma City? Is it, you know, Isaiah Joe to maximize shooting? Is it Kaysen Wallace, who has shot the ball really well? But I'm still pretty skeptical of that based on his, you know, college numbers at Kentucky. But, you know, defensively gives them a lot. That'd be an interesting question. The other thing do we need to mention at some point, I think, in this conversation is, look, there's still, you know, two and a half months until the trade deadline and the opportunity for teams to address some of these weaknesses. And that's going to be that's the other element of it for these older teams. They've all traded away. You know, Golden State still has some draft picks. They have a trade to potentially make. But and the Lakers have a trade to potentially make. But the Clippers and Suns in particular are going to find it very difficult to add midseason given the constraints on on teams over the luxury tax apron, adding buyouts and all the draft picks they've given up. I think that was kind of an interesting as an aside. The Clippers agreeing to sign Daniel Tice this early. I wonder if they would have done that last year when the whole world of buyout players was potentially available to them. Now Tice is one of the, I don't want to say few, but you know maybe one of the better players who might have come available based on the salary limitations now. It's a fantastic point. And you know, not all of those signings work out, but understanding the world of players that you could potentially get is very instructive for a team like the Clippers and the the Celtics and a few others could be dealing with those kinds of limitations as well. I wonder what Denver, if they want to, and I mean, they're pretty well positioned as of now, what they'll, what they'd be motivated to do. And it's, that ties in with, for me, it's been something that I've been thinking about a lot over the last couple of years and listening, longtime listeners of Real Gym Radio will be rolling their eyes saying, Danny talks about this all the time. There is this collection of Western conference teams that are asset rich, that they've done these trades and, and the front runners right now in this, for what I'm talking about are Oklahoma City and New Orleans because the Jazz and the Spurs aren't good, at least relative to this conversation. They have the means and they have like young talent. They have a lot of the stuff that one of the ways you can do this is you can just add, you know, use those picks that they're getting from the Lakers and Clippers and everyone else to add cost controlled talent when your current guys get more expensive. And, and there certainly is a financial argument in favor of that. You can also use those to improve, to kind of shift your timeline a little bit. And there is a credible argument now that, and this is something I want to talk about, that Zion is looking more like Zion, that both of those front offices, the Thunder and the Pelicans, should at least consider pushing some of their chips in if they they can find the right player at a reasonable or reasonable-ish price. Yeah, this is a really interesting discussion because we have it all the time. It's a different context because it's not a capped sport uh, in in baseball with my local team, the Mariners, about you know there, there's a lot of fans who are desperate to make win now moves right now because of the fact that the team has never made the World Series, has, has never uh, you know, it's the last remaining MLB team that that hasn't. And, you know, to me, the goal is to peak when Julio Rodriguez is their star player is peaking. But I think the equation is a little bit different in basketball because of the constraints. And Shea Gilgis Alexander is Oklahoma City's best player is closer to his peak right now. If I were the Thunder, I would 
I would be willing to explore it because, of, number one, they still have so many draft picks that they're going to be adding those cost-controlled players. And then, number two, they do have some payroll flexibility right now because Chet Holmgren's you know, got two years beyond this left on his rookie deal. Josh Giddy still has one year left. We'll see what happens after that. You know, even Kissin Wallace as he grows into a contributor. You've got Isaiah Joe and Jalen Williams, uh, big Jalen Williams locked in at the minimum guard Jalen Williams with uh, two more years left on his rookie deal. They've got the flexibility to do that next season with Davis Berton's salary coming off the books and Shea is their only guy making more than sixteen and a half million. New Orleans, I think it's a lot trickier because of the fact that, you know, they they can't add a lot of payroll. They already have so many big numbers with Zion and Brandon Ingram and CJ McCollum all over 30 plus million next year that, you know, just just retaining this group is maybe going to be cost prohibitive for the Pelicans, let alone adding money to it. To me, I mean, th- this also is a fascinating thing that often comes up in the mock trade deadlines that we do on the the Dunked On NBA Basketball podcast with with Nate and Dan Feldman. We are like very obsessed with a specific acquiring a specific type of player. And it's funny because Kenrich Williams has been this guy and he's already on the thunder. (laughs) Yeah, they they can't trade for Kenrich Williams. They have Kenrich Williams. These guys who are like very useful role players locked in on a great contract for a long period of time that almost never actually get traded or traded for a lot of value. But guess what? There is one of those guys out there this year. It's not a long contract that he's locked into, but he. He seems potentially, you know, quite available and potentially more valuable league wide than his more famous teammate on a higher contract who has been talked about in trade rumors. And that's Alex Caruso. Yes, Caruso this year and next year. He actually only has a partial guarantee, but you're going to pick that up if you're getting him. And then Caruso is. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know, Danny. (laughs) Has it ever been used that direction? What? Has it ever been used that direction? The I don't know if they're going to guarantee his contract as opposed to. Uh, it can be. There's there's nothing. I mean, Nate is the arbiter there, but I, I think there's nothing that prevents it. Caruso, and, and Caruso is a fascinating player. Uh, in many ways, he parallels. There, there's this rare subset of guys who are who are point guard sized, but don't really have the point guard offensive skill set that we also need to reconfigure. So we need to reconfigure what they are offensively. It's like they're definitely not on ball guys, at least most of the time. And so like Gary Payton II is in this group too. But it's also a reconfiguring of what they are defensively. Like Caruso, it's not like, oh, he's point guard size, so he's always guarding the other team's point guard. There are times where he's just the four on both ends for the Bulls. It's wild. Yeah, and it and they they need that basically to to complement their stars. This is something I, I put I I picked Caruso as my way too early six man in a piece that we have on Wednesday on ESPN.com. And look, as as has been discussed ad nauseum among this group, he has no chance of actually winning because he doesn't score enough points and he's not on a good team, but He's unlocked so many of those Chicago lineups. And we always talk about, well, Caruso needs a guy like Zach Levine, DeMar DeRozan to be successful. At some point, do we have to consider maybe do those guys need someone like Caruso to be successful? Thank you. Yes. Yeah. So, but it, but the funny thing about it is, at the same time I say that, and then I go through the list of contenders, I'm not sure who the perfect fit is for Caruso. Like, he could fit with anyone, <laughs> but I don't know that there's one team where it's like, oh, man, if you get Caruso on that team, look out. I out. have one. Okay. The Thunder. I I have had that thought as well. I mean, it's he. That's where he started his well, career with the it, Oklahoma City Blue. And and there's a second one. If you think that Caruso is a materially better player than Jose Alvarado, the Pelicans could make sense as well. Now, I I don't necessarily think that. Um, I th- I think he's better. But is he better enough that you're going to give up what the Bulls are willing to offer? Especially when you consider the other things that New Orleans could use their draft capital to acquire. Um, yeah, and and to me, the fact that Caruso isn't a great outside shooter is a bigger issue for, for New Orleans than it is for Oklahoma City, where the fact that Oklahoma City's bigs are you know almost all at least credible three point shooters uh, opens up some opportunities for them in, in a way that New Orleans playing Jonah, Jonas and uh, Zion Williamson together doesn't have those opportunities. I would also be interested. It would be asking Cruz to do something more like what he was on the Lakers on Philly. Now yeah. it would he overlaps with Melton, but part of the argument in favor of getting Crusoe is that he's Melton insurance because Melton is an unrestricted free agent. We don't know which path the Sixers are going to take now that they could theoretically, depending on how everything goes, they could either wield cap space 
get Geta, Pascal Siakam, an OG Ananobi, whichever player in question tickles your fancy there. Or they could theoretically use that spending power now through trading various different pieces for guys that are under contract beyond this year. Or I guess you could say theoretically with bird rights. So you're not using cap space in the traditional sense. So depending on which way Daryl Morey wants to go with that, because basically this idea of and this, there's a part of this, though Marcus Smart is more versatile, he has more he has more positives in many ways, is the idea that the person who is your most important offensive player needs to have a more manageable defensive assignment. And when you consider that for most teams, guarding the, the other team's point of attack, if you want to think of the point guard, it usually is, though it's not always, that's a really hard job. And so having somebody, whether it's Caruso or Gary Payton II or... I think Kaysen Wallace has done a good job there, which is maybe the argument against Oklahoma City trading for Caruso, is that you, so you, you kind of, in a weird way, you want that to be somebody else. However, the real, the real fun there is if you can do it like what, what at times Minnesota has done, which is you do that with a bigger player so you don't have to sacrifice size to make it happen. Yeah. I mean, I think that is kind of the world we're moving to where the best on ball defenders are going to be, you know, really athletic six foot eight guys with long wingspan. I mean, what I think makes Caruso interesting to me on those teams, even though that they already have guys who do some of those things is, well, one of those guys in Philadelphia is Patrick Beverly. And we saw what happened when Patrick Beverly and Caruso played together last year in Chicago. It was awesome. Caruso is like a defensive amplifier, not, you know, someone who has energistic properties. And, uh, that that is you know I don't think a concept that people think about defensively as much, but I I think is is offensively, but I I think it is a a meaningful uh, skill at that end of the court as well, especially if again you're thinking about projecting him onto these teams. That in OKC's case, it's Wallace and and Lou Dort. In Philly's case, Melton and Beverly already have some of these type of players. Well, that's like I think the the Bulls are currently number two in forcing turnovers, but the on offs for when Caruso's on the floor are completely ludicrous because. It's like he's really initiating a lot of that, amplifying, as you said, a a lot of that. And I'm sure that's also he's a better player again. But that was part of the theory of what another UW player, um, DeJounte Murray, another meaning I was referring to Jaden McDaniels earlier, um, was supposed to do there. And I mean, Atlanta's had a successful run overall relative. I mean, they're six and six, but they're they're top 10 in point differential overall in the league so far. And they've dealt with some absences like many teams have. So like you can do it in other ways. You can do it as Memphis intended to do with a superior player but there is something to be said for doing for filling that niche with somebody who's actually a little bit lower in your offensive pecking order because that way they know what their job is and they're not getting overburdened they're not getting they're not getting that and that from a team building perspective it allows you to kind of make sure that your lead players are your lead players well, if you're looking at the theory of how it's going to work in Phoenix defensively, that's the idea, right? Is that Keita Bates Diop has kind of stepped into that role, but you know whether it's him or, or Josh Kogi or even Nas Little, that whoever is in that spot has got to be defending the opponent's best player and, and often at the point of attack, even you know if that's not the the standard matchup. Yes, absolutely, and. I have a lot of concerns about Phoenix, but I'm going to kind of let those simmer for a little while until we get to see them at closer to full strength, which unfortunately is not going to be Im- immediately just because Bradley Beal's out for at least another couple weeks and everything else. I wanted to talk a little bit. So Nate and I last night, we we did the Pelicans Kings game and it has become pretty apparent over the last few years that Zion Williamson, I, I don't think of this as a good or a bad thing. It's just the way things go. It takes him a little while to get going. And if he's healthy, to start the year it's usually about 10 games but what we've seen over the last few is closer to the guy that he's been at his best than we've than we see every moment of every season and i wish we saw it more but it reminds me of this idea that has come up i i think the pelicans are their their best players are in many ways ill-fitting with each other like cj and ingram and zion each with each other i think you could go in different ways david griffin has not built the team the way that i would and that's okay but zion is so good and i mean there were times yesterday where brandon ingram was so good where the fit issues don't matter because you can't stop them anyway. <laughs> yes, they've just the they went to the fit and Brandon Ingram shot over the fit and Zion Williamson just went right through the fit and dunked over it. 
I yeah, I mean, it was really exciting. I hadn't seen the Pelicans in a couple of weeks before I watched the first half of last night's game. And it was interesting. You know, Sacramento made that run at the end of the first quarter. It was like, okay, New Orleans got off to a great start, but now it's going to be a competitive game the rest of the way. And, you know, that fast start didn't matter. And then, boom, New Orleans hit the gas again, and Sacramento was just was just toasting that one. It could be in part because Sacramento was on the tail end of back-to-back. They had a game against Dallas on that was on Sunday. That, that can often, you know, the con- context can indicate a lot of those things. And also, Sacramento, particularly once Keegan Murray went out with a back issue, they didn't have as many players. They don't have really forward-sized players, too many in their rotation who can defend guys like Zion. And then they don't have the help because Sabonis does many things well. That's help defender is not really one of them. So Sacramento, I think they're a team that they, each of those squads had trouble defending the other at times, but like it just became clear that Minnesota, sorry, New Orleans best players were were on in a way that Sacramento's were not. De'Aaron Fox had a really rough game overall. And for New Orleans, it's, I mean, they just got Jose Alvarado back. They're still dealing with the absence of, of Larry Nance. They're still dealing with the absence of Trey Murphy and everything else. And so like, we will, we will need some time to clarify what they were, but that it's another thread of the West that I find so compelling is that you have all these teams that their best certainly appears good enough. And how often are they going to hit it? Like I, I consider Dallas another one of those, like their offense, there are times where their offense is just so good that even if their defense is bad, you just, you, you could still win games. You could still beat good team. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, the Jason Kidd said it the other day. Our best, our best defense is, is our offense, and uh, I don't think he was referring to your theory about the uh, kind of interconnected nature of the fact that you know do you defend better after a score than you do after a, a live ball turnover or after a missed shot. I think he was just cheekily referring to the fact that his team isn't going to be very good defensively, so they got to just outscore people with efficient offense. And when Kyrie is playing well, when Luca is at the top of his game, that's certainly something they have the potential to do. Uh, I don't think to to go back to your original point about, you know, are you going to be able to do that three matchups in a row in the playoffs? Probably not. Probably not. Plenty more to discuss, but first a message from FanDuel. Snap into action this season with FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. Right now, new customers get $200 in bonus bets guaranteed when you place a $5 bet. That is $200 in bonus bets, win or lose. If you've been thinking about joining FanDuel, there's no better time to get in on the action. The app is so easy to use, wide range of betting options, including spreads, player props, which I love, over-unders, and more. So visit FanDuel.com slash Boston kick off the NFL season. FanDuel, official partner of the NFL, must be 21 or over and present in Massachusetts. Hope is here. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling helpline ma.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support. Play it smart from the start. GameSenseMA.com or call 1-800-GAM-1234. And that group of dangerous, dynamic, but probably not winning the West, probably not winning a championship, like, it seems like that stable is really strong right now in the West. And and maybe it's just needs to be an adjustment. Maybe some teams will show that they're better than that. I mean, I, I was lower on Denver going into last year, and we saw what they did in the playoffs. And we could shift to the East. You brought up the point at the very beginning about how the, the teams at the top record-wise, and to a larger extent, uh, or to a lesser extent, but still relatively so from a point differential perspective are are who we expected we're still still seeing some of these teams work through availability issues and everything else is there anything that's really surprised you with those best teams so far I mean, I think how well Tyrese Maxey has played, that he's played at a top 10 level so far this season has surprised me. I was I was a little bit of a relative Maxey skeptic coming into this season. I thought that, you know, kind of it's easy to be excited about the young player who is, you know, everything he's giving you as a bonus. And then when it comes to be the situation where you're counting on them and especially he hasn't gotten that extension. But as we think ahead to his next contract and how that affects our perception of his value, you know, I started to wonder how different is he from that Tyler Hero, Jordan Poole, Anthony Simons group? And the answer turns out to be a lot. He's a better playmaker and a more efficient scorer at this point than those players. And that's a huge deal for the Sixers, not only this season in terms of their chances of still being a championship contender without 
James Harden, even without going out and making out. Like, I'd be surprised if they won the East without adding, you know, another above average starter, OG Ananobi or Ananobi or better uh, at the deadline. But I don't think it would be inconceivable that could happen right now. And that's that's a material difference from where I thought was thinking starting the season. The, the like league wide, they've had the individual EPM stuff and I'm not treating any all in one black box status gospel. Sixers are the only team in the NBA with two top 10 players on offensive EPM and it's Embiid is fifth. Maxi is seventh. That is pretty astonishing. And I mean, just Maxi being seventh in that is, is incredible. And you brought up the distinction between Maxi and that other kind of the, the shoot first guards that are, that have gotten big contracts and may not potentially be living up to them. And and one thing I want to give Maxi a lot of credit for, Jarek Bodner broke this down really well in the pod. Um, less than a month ago, is that he's continued to add to his game. And that Maxi, he was a shaky shooter to start, and now he's become significantly more reliable there. And then as a, as a pick-and-roll operator, he's developed more versatility on his jump shot, and he's gotten better defensively too, which is another parallel he has with Shea gildas Those guys are not, they don't play the same way necessarily, but they've both worked hard to improve at making new strengths and sanding down their biggest weaknesses. And that makes you a significantly more compelling, viable playoff player because at times playoffs are about this, the severity of your strengths. But I would say more often than not, it's about the severity of your weaknesses. Well, certainly in the playoffs. I mean, this is a concept that I like to talk with my brother about on, on our podcast is strong link versus weak link units or sports. And to me, the playoff, the regular season is much more a strong link uh, game and the playoffs are much more a weak link game because whatever, whoever is the weakest player in your starting lineup or the five that you have on the out there at the end of games is going to get picked at and exposed. And even though obviously like the value of stars is magnified because they're able to play longer minutes and, you know, ramp up their usage, it still is more about, you know, who, who can have the more complete team team out there more relative to the regular season agreed and uh, one way of thinking about that is like there have been times with boston this year where they have this you know especially with the four spacing they have at, at center now with christophs presingus they have this dynamic where they could just lean most heavily on the player of theirs that has the most advantageous matchup and just kind of like pivot the axis of their offense that way they've done it a little bit but when i've watched the celtics they haven't done it that much it's been more like okay we want it to be tate and we want it to be brown and they're not caring as much about who is on the player in question but when you get to the playoffs not only is it the idea that you're game planning for a single opponent adjusting but it's the players themselves understanding the tendencies understanding these things so it all fits together that you're going to be more focused on what what players can't guard you because you're seeing them every day yeah yeah i think that's a, a big part of it and then just you know this goes hand in hand with more switching if switching is the easiest way to stay out of rotation and avoid giving up high value stats shots then inevitably that's going to allow offensive players to do more to pick the defender that they they want to defend them in terms of you know who they're going to call up to set the screen something else i wanted to discuss is i we've gotten into a little bit about how some of the highest performing teams that have surprised are you know maybe that's maybe that's a little bit you know, a little bit temporary, but I'm more interested right now in some of the like separate sides. You know, it's a smaller sample because we're splitting into offense and defense, but like Indiana being third in offense and Orlando largely without Wendell Carter Jr. being third in defense. Both of those are just like, hmm, maybe maybe we really do need to think about this differently, at least for the Pacers offense when they have Tyrese Halliburton on the floor. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned kind of looking at that offensive component. I have put together my, uh, I, I have this titled in my in in my uh, R files, uh, Schnorps off of Zachla's Vorps and Schnorps. The uh, <laughs> and it's a small group this year because sadly the RAPM from NBAShotCharts.com isn't being updated right now, and we don't have 538's Raptor metric uh, at the moment. Hopefully that'll come back and, and find a new home, and then the LeBron metric hasn't been posted yet because it's still so early in the season but uh, i have epm in there the offensive and defensive components in my own wins above replacement player metric and then uh, box plus minus from basketball reference and if you kind of average those adjust for position 
the uh, the top 10 looks it's similar to what you were saying with EPM. But Tyrese Halliburton is the number two offensive player in the league behind only Nikola Jokic. And like it makes sense. Like he's what, what are his shooting splits at this point? R- ridiculous. 100, 100, 100. It's kind of what it feels like <laughs> at times. And I mean, we're, we're recording this before um, on Tuesday before the next batch of in-season tournament games. And I mean, it's only they only have two wins, but like the Pacers potentially locking up their spot. I think they would actually be the first to mathematically would, yeah. clinch their spot in the in the final eight would be a huge step just so we have the splits here because it's astonishing. 50 percent field goals, 43 percent on threes and you know a light 94 percent from the free throw line for Tyrese Halliburton for those of you who like these stats 66 percent true shooting on 25 usage he's also got like a five to one assist to turnover rate he's averaging half as many turnovers less than half as many turnovers as Cade Cunningham well averaging 11.6 assists and 23.5 points per game this guy's pretty good man he is and as somebody who was high on Halliburton in the draft process, this isn't what I saw coming. <laughs> you know, like, I, mean, this... I don't think anybody was higher on Halliburton in the draft process than me. I had him, you know, I had him in my tier one with Anthony Edwards wow. in that draft. You know, Lamelo Ball was the tier one; those guys were tier two. So I had him, you know, second or third in that. that you you did better draft. than me on that. I still didn't imagine that he would be this complete in offensive superstar. I mean, it's it's like. It's not quite to prime Steve Nash levels, but it, we're, we're approaching that territory. We're approaching that territory. And Tyrese Halliburton, this is, I believe, his age 24 season. Like, the, it, or 23. This is age 23 season. And that, you know, like, we're generally, I mean, maybe his career arc is going to be different. That's entirely possible. But, like, where he, where he's going with it. And Halliburton, you, you invoked Cade Cunningham. And so that leads us to the transition to the, you did a nice mailbag piece for ESPN. I believe that was earlier this week, might have been last week about that ended up discussing the the Rockets and the Pistons a fair amount and one stat that stuck out to me from that was basically that correct me if I get the phrasing wrong here that basically only two other two other players have a harder shot profile or play with worse spacing is that the better way to put it than Cade Cunningham yeah so the way I looked at this was if you take kind of the the Darko projection system estimates of three-point attempt rate per hundred possessions for the other four guys who are out there with you at any given time and then wait by the minutes played you know in all the different lineups the least amount of total three-point attempts around you number one on that list is isaiah stewart because isaiah stewart has a higher uh true three-point attempt he shoots more than kate yeah, as a power forward stretch. I mean, look, these two shooting threes. The rest is not uh, not going so well for him at the four. His defensive impact, but uh, he he is making threes. Give him credit. Then it's Lamelo Ball, and this was you know primarily before Miles Bridges came back to the lineup and added a little more shooting for them. And then number three was Cade Cunningham, which means that it's much harder to evaluate Cunningham so far. But we are going to reach a point at, at some juncture in the next couple of years where the Pistons are going to have to do that where you know players don't have a lot of control over their destiny and of course was Kate Cunningham was a super high draft pick and I don't think he's the problem I don't think that at all but it what what pressure comes in here over the next year is it the Pistons, whether it's Troy Weaver or somebody else, and you brought this up in the piece, bringing in other players or even just incorporating some of the guys they have now that are hurt, like Bogdanovich, and getting a more fair evaluation of what Kate Cunningham can do. But the big pressure, and you did a great job juxtaposing this with the Rockets, is, oh, well, the Rockets got so much better and they added in all this veteran talent. It's making guys like Shangun. It's helping them and facilitating the development that they've already done. You have to actually get the right guys to make that work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and look, the the thing I didn't say in that piece, I, I know Tim McMahon has brought this up, is is a point is like how lucky were the Rockets that they didn't sign Brooke Lopez, which they 100% thought they were going to do, because Shingun would not have gotten this opportunity if he were playing backup five. Who knows if they maybe even would have looked to trade him at that point. So that worked out beautifully, and and Fred Van Bleet was the right type of player to pursue, and James, James Harden probably would not have been as uh, beneficial for the development of these Houston young players, although Shingun and him could have had an interesting pick-and-roll combo, I suppose. Uh, yeah, I mean, Detroit has brought in veterans. It's not like they're like, you know, the process Sixers and it's 14 young guys and sometimes Elton Brand. 
like part of it is they have been unlucky that Boyan Bogdanovich has missed the entire season. He just got cleared for full contact. But unfortunately, at the same time, we learned that Monte Morris is going to be signed another sidelined another six to eight weeks uh, with his injury. And he was somebody who, you know, slotting him into the lineup ahead of Killian Hayes, I think could have made Cade Cunningham's life a lot easier. But the biggest thing to me is it's not even necessarily about their development so much as like Detroit can't answer the question of how good is Cade really until they put a better ecosystem around him. And that's a really important question to answer, whether he is potentially good enough to be the best player on a contending team. And I think the evidence you know, suggests that probably at this point he is, he is not trending in that direction, but we can't be sure if that's just because of the, the tough situation he's been put in. It also will be worth remembering that, I mean, I don't know why Mike Conley is always the guy that sticks in my head with this, that it can take lead ball handlers some time. And because some of them have exe- have succeeded so early, I think there's an idea that like, oh, well, they, if they don't, if they don't show it, but again, like the idea can be showing it doesn't have to be every moment of every game. It can be, you know, you have these stretches of, of undeniability and it's like, okay, they'll, they'll get there. And then, I mean, there are guys like Luca who are just awesome early. That happens. And, and okay. So, well, th- no, this is a important point. So let's stick on this because I, it's something I didn't end up writing about it in the mailbag but did do the research on is one of the other questions i got is was basically like is there an example of someone who is is inefficient relative to the league over their first however many games kate has played who has developed into an all-star and the answer is there's actually a lot of them in large part because you know when i looked at this kate had played 88 career games it's basically most guys rookie season so that's an element of it and uh there's basically three groups of players there there were draymond green and ben wallace who obviously did not end up becoming all-stars on the strength of their offensive efficiency there was brandon ingram who i think is maybe the closest comp for Cade, and became decently efficient in year two but it wasn't until he got to new orleans and developed as a three-point shooter that he really became a a reasonably efficient scorer and and an all-star caliber of player and you know maybe detroit should look at hiring fred vinson if they can and given his role in that and Lonzo Ball's development as a shooter. And then the third group was, oh, it's just a ton of point guards have mm-hmm. not been very efficient coming into the league and have developed into all-stars. It's not actually that notable at all. I don't think that Kid Cunningham in his most realized version is a point guard, but if you think that, that's the case for him. Part of what I liked about Kid Cunningham as a draft prospect was the idea that he had the on-ball juice, and but that he was also a good enough shooter that if you need to play, if you want or need to play him off ball, either in specific sets or because you have a better guy, that his game could work. He's a capable defender for his height and everything else. And it is concerning that that part of it, I haven't gone into some of the splits yet, in part just because the sample sizes are so small. Like last year, like I would kind of rather throw last year out entirely rather than consult it for something like that. But 12 games is still. You know, it's still a significant part of his NBA career at this juncture. And so with, with Cade, you have that. And there, there are these twin forces in play when you think about this from a team perspective, because one part of it is it does it does matter in terms of how the Pistons conceive of themselves, because it may change how you do things. Draft. Now, if you if you think about the draft the way that I do, it actually doesn't as much because you should take the best player almost irrespective of role and position, all that stuff, just because you the the pressure to make the, the right decision. Like I, I always use Sexton and Garland as the example here, where like even if you think Sexton is the answer, whether you, you might not be right, you might you, you don't know if you're right or not. But if you think Garland is the best player available, you take him and then you have two two answers at one of the most important questions to answer in the entire NBA. That's- I feel like I feel like we should update that that example though because it is, isn't the example now Fox and Halliburton like I don't love the Halliburton trade for Sacramento. Obviously, I think it was an amazing win for Sac- for Indiana to get a player who is better, younger, well, and way cheaper. Which is not a controversial take, see, I think, see, among to the me, listeners here. If you're going to make that, if you're going to use De'Aaron Fox as that example, you're going to do it with, um, was, uh, with that Luka? Josh, which, was that with Josh Jackson? Like, who was the, there was a player taken over De'Aaron Fox, and wasn't that the Suns who passed on Fox because they thought they had their point guard situation handled? I think they just thought that Josh Jackson was a better prospect. I mean, the hype around him was pretty big. But uh, yeah, you could also use it with De'Aaron Fox and uh, Luka Doncic. Sure. But but the, since this, but this is a situation where it happened in reality, where Fox and Halliburton, I still think it's kind of ridiculous that they couldn't have coexisted. But De'Aaron, De'Aaron Fox at least seemed to operate as if they couldn't coexist. And like, 
yes, they didn't get enough value in the Halliburton trade. But DeMontis Sabonis for the number 12 pick that they originally used on Halliburton is an amazing piece of value. Yeah, and he's helped them an an immense amount in in the success that they've had. And so that part of it, I, I brought up the idea that it shouldn't change who you draft. However, there are two big things that it does change. One of them is Kate Cunningham is seven months away from being extension eligible. And if this season goes the way it's looking like it's going to go, we're on pace for one of the more acrimonious, awkward extension negotiations. We may not get the reporting on this. We'll have to see that I've ever seen like because the the arguments like, okay, you haven't lived up to expectations. Like, I don't think you can give Cade Cunningham a no hesitation, 25 percent max right now. Like, that's not the player he's been. I, I think you probably can and you probably will if you drafted him and you don't have a lot of success to show for your tenure as a lead executive thus far. And he's got the per game stats that he does. Like you can still sell that, you know, what number of players averaged 21 points and seven assists per game at, in their age 22 season like Hague Cunningham. And you can put together a list and partially oh, are, 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 are we going to get into the Killian Hayes argument now of the like, oh, nobody's ever had nobody has ever had this usage with the true shooting solo. It's like, yeah, because you chose to have him do it. Yeah. Uh, well, Kid Cunningham is in his own list of nobody's ever had a usage with the true shooting percentage this low. Not not quite ever, but uh, he, he's in his own list. I, I think that just, you know, the organizational importance of Cade Cunningham is such that it probably won't be an acrimonious conversation. But yeah, this is this gets to my point of like the the way that Detroit has mismanaged what's around Cade Cunningham has made it impossible for them to have this kind of frank conversation about his value, I think. And what's so surreal about this is that, broadly speaking, that we're, we're building up data points here, and I'm not entirely sure how I feel about the overall picture. Troy Weaver has, he has some real talent finds overall. I think that yeah. th- like there have been some circumstances where he has evaluated talent incredibly well and has, you know, identified, has identified circumstances or, you know, players to pass on in certain circumstances that like I, you know, we disagreed and he was right. Like, and I, w- I will give that credit, but the over, there are two problems with what he has done. One is the overall philosophy, which is more what we've been talking about, the lack of spacing, the niches that they don't have filled and everything else. The other is how aggressive some of his bets have been that were more dicey. So like one example of that is the trade that they made last year where functionally they traded Sadiq Bay for James Wiseman. And James Wiseman, you could say he's a player worth gambling on, that the Warriors circumstance, that he was a, a very physically talented guy. I had him second on my draft board. I, of course, regret that now. But like the idea that he deserves a second chance. But you gave up a player who was good, who is rare, and who was on a team-friendly contract for that season and the current one. And you so, okay, and the Warriors were basically desperate to get rid of him. And then it was sort of a similar story with Marvin Bagley, where Bagley had a rough go of it with the Kings. And again, another player who's known in part more for the players that were taken after him rather than what he has done. But again, they overrated and then overpaid. They overpaid for Bagley and they overpaid Bagley. And so those decisions, kind of, you put them all together, and as you give it, what, even if you give them to a talented coach, it's just like the groceries are bad. <laughs> and there's too many of them that do the same thing because you know Marvin Bagley and James Wiseman, they're not the exact same player, but they have some broad similarities. And guess what? You don't want to play either of those two guys with Jalen Duran, who is your most important young big man. So this is creating all sorts of problems. And, and you arguably and don't want to play either of them with Isaiah Stewart either. Right. I think, yeah, Isaiah Stewart is their backup center. They'd be much better off with that situation. So that that's a pretty major problem. I I mean, I think this this does speak to a broader topic that I've written about and discussed in the past is like, you know, back in the day, uh, our, our buddy John Hollinger popularized the concept of the second draft of taking these young players who hadn't wa- hadn't succeeded in their first stops and buying low on them and getting value on it. And Troy Weaver has believed in that more than almost anyone else in the NBA because it's those guys, but it's also Kevin Knox. It's, I don't know, there's just so many of them. Uh, I guess Trey Lyles probably fit into that and that's someone who ended up actually becoming a pretty decent contributor in Sacramento after the fact. Josh Jackson was there, right? He was, yes. I can't even keep keep all of them straight. They're, they like, had Nerlens so for a little while, guys. too. 
So, you know, he's and I've written that I don't think the second draft works anymore because of the fact that, you know, the pressure on the back end of these rookie contracts to contribute becomes pretty large. Like James Wiseman is making 12 million this year. It's not an enormous amount, but it's, you know, more than the mid-level exception. You know, it's in the ballpark of the mid-level exception. It's more than Alec Burks and Monte Morris are making who are like good rotation players for the Pistons. And, you know, that's that's part of the challenge. And I think I think the league as a whole has seemed to learn this lesson because one of the interesting things is the number of guys who are recent first round picks, mostly by the Houston Rockets because of the fact that they had to clear a bunch of roster spots this summer and uh, had to find a way to make that sign and trade with Memphis for Dylan Brooks, who have gotten waived and have cleared waivers and ended up on two way contracts with their next teams as opposed to. So it's, you know, Milwaukee has Ty Ty Washington on a two way as opposed to paying him, you know, four or five million next year, whatever his original contract would have been. Yeah, and you could think about what R.J. Hampton did as well. Wasn't that also with the Pistons? <laughs> yes, yes, of course it was. And and like and I was I'm going through the last couple of years. They also had Dennis Smith Jr. at one point. They yep. also had Jaleel Okafor at one point. Yep. Both of whom are also other t- player types that Troy Weaver has believed in, like the athlete first point guard and the big man who can't defend. Um, are are other archetypes and. And so the difference between, like, there are many, but one of the important differences between what the Rockets did and what the Pistons have done so far, not to say that it's their destiny, is trying to put your overall team, having a cogent thesis, putting your team and your young players included within that in a position to succeed. There is no guarantee that those players are going to succeed. You had a wild stat. Is Jalen Green shooting like 35% on drives this year? Yeah, I mean, I think that's so low, it's probably unsustainable. Yes, they're, it, they're, especially for a player that athletic, it seems like they're, the regression of the mean is mandatory because it's functionally impossible that it could be anything else. And that doesn't necessarily mean, as I said, that the player will succeed. It just means that you can say credibly, okay, this is what we have, this is what we need to work with. And you reach a juncture, like not everybody can be Oklahoma City, where you get, you get that opportunity just by drafting really well and making fair the move. Sometimes you have to... Be more assertive, be more proactive to make that happen. But that point is very present. And like, I mean, the team that I'm thinking about a lot with that, obviously the Pistons are at the forefront, is also going to be, they're not there now, but San Antonio, where their offense is so abysmal and generally their defense has been flawed and frustrating as well, where you can argue they're at the early stage of this, but when you have Victor Wembanyama, who hasn't been perfect, but has certainly shown signs, San Antonio, actually, I think their overall talent level is probably, their overall talent level is significantly better than their current resume because their current resume is abysmal. But the problem is the thing they need the most is maybe like unless you're going to draw the the line at like oh you need a top 10 player getting that offensive centerpiece the offensive engine like i try to use those terms not point guard because the player can be six foot ten if that it can be seven foot like Jokic if that 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 what works because they they're running into i always think of this as the orlando magic problem where every other piece like keldon johnson devin vassell victor wembanyama would make significantly more sense if they had that guy at the top and because you have Wembenyama and because those players just don't change teams very often, it's going to be hard to do that, even if they end up with like a top three pick this year. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because that's not necessarily the type of player that is at the top of this year's draft. I mean, Isaiah Collier might be that sort of player, if not him. Zachary Richastney, which maybe they'll just go like all French uh, with their with their team. That would be yes. amazing. And, and another giant guy who can play with the ball in his hands, uh, Jeremy Sohan style. But I think he'd be a, a little bit more ex- effective in that role than so Point Sohan has been this season. But you know, those are the top two guys in this year's draft. So it will be interesting how they handle that. Now they are also putting together a lot of draft picks and they could use some of these young players potentially to trade for that guy but yeah it's it's not the the hole that you want to have uh, on a is your ability a team you want it to be the uh, the supplementary parts that uh, are what you need to figure out true and that's why for utah if keontae george can be at least a temporary answer for them there 
then that, especially considering the general reputation of the 2024 draft class, that could buy them a little bit of time. I I love Keontae George. I think he's been very impressive so far, but Utah, like, because what I've been thinking, I had had this idea for a long time. Like I was part of why I was really optimistic on Utah after the Gobert trade and the Mitchell trade. It's like, okay, if Walker Kessler can be like a defensive foundational piece and we'll, we'll get more data on that positive negative over the course of the year then that's really like that and ideally somebody who is wing-sized, which they don't really have right now. Those are things. And it's like, oh, they can throw all these resources. And what I've turned on over about the last seven months is, okay, great. That's what you need. Who is giving that up? And more importantly, when we're talking Jazz and Spurs, who's giving that up and the player is even remotely on your timeline? Because if you want to get a 34-year-old point guard who's going to make you better, they're always available. Like, there will be a Mike Conley. It probably will be actual Mike Conley at some other point in the future again. But if you want somebody who's, even if it's if they're pre-prime, if they're in prime, good luck. Well, I think that's a situation where you might see those teams make a trade similar to what we've seen from Oklahoma City the last couple of years, where you probably overpay in terms of draft picks to go get the guy that you want. But you know, maybe find that that's how you find the guy in the draft because of the fact that you have stockpiled does. And, you know, I, I didn't love the value for Oklahoma City on the deal to get Kaysen Wallace this year. But if Kaysen Wallace, you know, shoots it half as well as he has thus far, I don't think they're going to mind swallowing that year of Davis Bertans's contract and the small guarantee next year. The other possibility is that some of these younger guys shake loose a little earlier than they have over the last couple of years. And like the guy that I'm thinking of is Trey Young and potentially he's flawed. So, so the Spurs offer the Hawks the draft picks that they traded them for DeJounte Murray for Trey Young? Yes, that is that is basically <laughs> where I'm going with, with some of this. And I mean, I, I said, Nate and I did a ranking of this about a year ago. I said that, that I think it was the Hawks 27 pick was the single traded draft asset that I would most want to have because basically it's betting against the Hawks. And they're, they're doing better for this year. But in terms of their long-term future, I'm still broadly of that mind. I'm not going to re-rank everything. I would need to go spend hours like I did then. But maybe, and that and that's that's the kind of way you can do it. Maybe a player like that comes loose. Or, I mean, the, the dream in many ways for that is what Houston did with Harden back in the day, where you can identify a player who is not at that level of premium. But I've talked before about how the Kawhi Leonard trade to the Raptors was lightning in a bottle because it was the combination of like an underappreciated player and the Spurs overappreciating the assets that the, th- that the Raptors put in. You can make a credible argument that there are fewer of the OKC to Houston Harden trade than even that archetype. Well, Halliburton is the modern version of the OKC Harden trade, right? Like, I think so, yeah. Sacramento had a better idea probably of what they had in Halliburton, but you know, the same kind of, we were definitely in the right place at the right time to be able to make a deal like this. So it, it does happen occasionally. And, you know, here's an interesting question. We talked about Josh Giddy in the playoffs. What if Josh Giddy is that guy for San Antonio? Ooh, the wizard of slob. Yeah. I mean, I feel like Victor Wembanyama would probably enjoy playing with Josh Giddy a lot more than Trey Young. Likely true. Likely true. <laughs> That's my suspicion. And like, there's a possibility that LaMelo Ball could get in this conversation in time. Um, like maybe the Hornets get impatient and, and I mean, I don't think he's the problem for them, but they, they could potentially have that and we'll, we'll see. But Portland is another team that you could look at like. Anthony Simons, I mentioned him earlier in that group. Like, I don't think he's a great player and he's got some limitations, but if you put him on San Antonio, you, he would help them a lot. Mm-hmm. That's that's definitely true. And and it could even be, I mean, this would be a wild theory, but what if it's Towns? <laughs> so you build your offense around a 7-4 dude and a 6-11 guy who can both shoot? I, I'm intrigued. I'm, I'm listening. I, I think I might be firing up a, a 2K a 2K fictional universe to try to try that out over the next couple of weeks but uh i will thank you for taking the time for coming on pleasure as always yeah this is a, a really interesting conversation didn't know where we were gonna go and we took it in a lot of fun directions thanks again to kevin pelton for taking the time to come on you can read his excellent work at espn sometimes you can see him on espn which is always extremely exciting and of course his other excellent podcast appearances you can also follow him on blue sky kpelton.bsky.social you can also find me there. You should be able to search my name. I'm guessing you can see it there. I don't know how much I'm going to be posting, but that is, if, if I am posting, that's where it will be. If you want to support the show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player of your choosing. You can subscribe, download every episode that is particularly useful for Real GM Radio. 
because it's never going to come out on a specific time or day of the week. That's just not the way this this works. So whatever podcast player you use, and if the podcast player you use doesn't have Real Jam Radio, please let me know, and I'll tell you how to do that very shortly. You can also check out our sponsors. The single most important thing you can do for this podcast and any other that has them for this episode, that is FanDuel. FanDuel.com slash Boston. New customers get $200 in bonus bets guaranteed when you place a $5 bet. Talked about that at length earlier on the show. You can also check out my other work, Dunked On, Dunked On Prime with Nate Duncan. Lots of great stuff there. We're actually getting closer to award season, 15 and 60s and gamers, and we're going hard after the in-season tournament. We did an hour and a half yesterday on a five-game slate because Pacers, Hawks, and Cavs, Sixers were so much fun and laying out some of the scenarios that are going through. And those of you who know me know that I love that kind of thing. We're also doing the NBA strategy stream, which is through League Pass, where you can watch the game, hear us call it. We do roughly one a week, typically on Mondays, and we'll be doing next Monday, we're going to be doing Pelicans Jazz, which I believe is a 9 p.m. start, Eastern, 6 Pacific. Could be a really fun one. Zion ran wild, so did Brandon Ingram in the Pelicans game we did last week, and we opted to do another one, and we had a scheduling change there. We also are doing what we're calling NBA Ricochet on playback. That is a little bit more random, though we are focusing on the in-season tournament. We will be doing the games on Wednesday. We're going to be focusing on Celtics Bucks, but then we're also going to be doing the final day of the in-season tournament next Tuesday, and we'll let you know beyond that. I'm guessing we'll be doing plenty of work for the quarterfinals, and I have written work at The Athletic. Don't have anything new right now, but have other things that are in process, so appreciate it. And you can, of course, read so many other people's wonderful work there as well. If you have any feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, Daniel LaRue at NBA, sorry, Daniel LaRue NBA at gmail.com is the way to get it to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That is an absolute promise. I get things all the time and I, I read them. I consider them. That doesn't mean I, I do everything, but I, I do read them. And I it is a very good way to get things to me. And I, I have always talked about how like Twitter is too ephemeral and now the blue sky is too ephemeral. We can get into all that kind of stuff as well. But that's why the email is there. It's a, it's a you can think of it as a suggestion box or a feedback box or whatever. And I, I do try to reply. And I'm rambling too much, which means I've been doing this for too long. So thank you so much for listening. Take care. Have a happy Thanksgiving and make it a great day. Mm-hmm.